Thank you, ladies. Uh, the ladies uh, had a retreat this weekend here at Cross Point, and uh, the ladies that just led us in worship led worship during the retreat, and um, I expect that it was a sweet time. My wife said that it was a wonderful, wonderful time together. I'm glad that that happened. I'm thankful for ladies that are leading out and uh, working at connecting and working at walking in faith together. Um, it's a blessing. If you're here with us this morning and are visiting, I want to just welcome you. Uh, if I haven't done that already, I want to want to do that now. Let you know that we're not the best church in town. I don't know that there is such a thing. Churches are different. Uh, we may not be the best fit for you, and that's totally okay. Uh, if this is your one Sunday with us this morning, and the uh, Lord is leading you to find a different place to connect, then hear from us that we're cheering for you to land somewhere and land squarely and land well, to know and be known. It matters. It's important. Uh, we want to be who God's called us to be, and if the Lord uh, leads you to be part of us or to find out if you'd like more information about who we are, uh, you can visit this little, little kiosk over here on our way out or on your way out this morning and grab some information about us. We tried to sort of capture who we are as a people on paper. Now, it doesn't do, the, do it justice because that's unfair to us to try and capture us on a piece of paper, but uh, maybe in, uh, complemented with uh, spending some time with us on Sunday mornings and maybe joining... Um, uh, coming to a life group or two, you may get a chance to get to know us better and try and figure out, is this, is this the place that the Lord should have you? So, uh, but if this is your um, first Sunday or if you're visiting with us and this is uh, among the first few Sundays, we're glad you're here. If you're part of our church family, of course we're glad you're here. We are family. We enjoy each other. Uh, Sunday mornings, really, for me, um, I'm very conscious about it not being a performance. This is like family gathering. It's just a big den. And it's not so much conversational, you know, as family gathers, it's more conversational. So I realize it's a little different, um, but there are a lot of the same uh, aspects, a lot of transfer. That's the only way I could do this, because I'm not a performer. I'd scare, the thought scares me to death, like I can't imagine doing that. But it, it, what we're doing here, I like. I like doing this. We're family gathers, and we gather around a book and we enjoy a good father and what he's done for us in Christ. And we try and make sense of it through his, his word and his Bible. Man, I like that. I like that. So if you're part of our family, um, it's good to see you this morning. I'm glad you're well. I hope you're well. And um, we're going to start with prayer, praying for those who aren't with us because they're not, not well this morning. I'm um, also going to be praying for Riley uh, Carroll. Little Riley's in ICU right now. She uh, went last night. Um, with some breathing issues. I'm not sure if it's flu-related or just breathing issues. So uh, we want to pray for Riley, and um, we're going to pray for another pastor in our community. Lord, uh, we are thankful for our time together this morning. Thank you uh, already for the, the true and rich words we've been able to enjoy in song, Lord, that we can sing true things back to you about you, uh, not only uh, as an offering to you, but reminding one another as we sing that you are good and that you are gracious and that you have done great things for us in Christ. Lord, I'm thankful for what song does to us as it stirs us and it moves us and it prepares us uh, to spend time with you, Lord. It not only is it an offering to you, but it is uh, softening our hearts and our ears, uh, preparing us to hear from you through your word. Lord, I pray that it's done that. I'm thankful really already thankful that it already has. And uh, Lord, a few things specifically we want to bring before you corporately. We want to pray for little Riley Carroll, um, praying for Kellen and Angie as they're uh, with Riley and trying to figure out what's going on there, Lord. We pray that you would give the doctors uh, a special wisdom and insight 
into what she's dealing with, Lord, and that uh, you would either use the doctors or just use uh, just what you do and just heal her and uh, bring her back home safe and sound, Lord. I'm uh, thankful for good medicine, but more thankful for a good God and a good father that cares about little Riley and about her family. Uh, entrusting her to you right now, Lord. Praying, too, for little Trevor as he is going through some pretty uh, challenging, uh, difficult uh, treatment, Lord. We pray for him and his family. Lord, I just seeing pictures of the little lad with a big smile on his face. I'm thankful for his little heart. I'm thankful that he is holding, holding fast to you right now, that he is wearing uh, the full armor that's suited and fitted to his little frail body right now. And Lord, I just um, pray that you would heal his body. Use this treatment or use whatever means necessary to heal his body, Lord. Lord, also want to pray for Larry Allgood this morning and for his wife, uh, Barbara. Uh, as Larry, a pastor of um, Believers Baptist, Lord, as he is attending to his wife this morning and she is especially uh, sick and in ICU, Lord, we pray that you would um, uh, just minister to that family right now. Uh, Lord, I don't know all the details of what's going on there, but I pray that you would use this uh, season in the life of Believers Baptist to actually grow this people uh, in maturity, that they would hold fast to you right now, uh, that they would trust you, um, and that Larry would trust you uh, with this, uh, trust, entrust his wife to you, and that he would have a peace that could only come from you in that. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to lift up our brothers and our sisters and our uh, children and uh, people that we care about deeply and realizing all the while that you care about them more than we do. Uh, we're thankful. Lord, entrusting this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. You can go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 6. We don't know how old Lazarus was when he died the first time. Um, we know that he had a couple of sisters, Mary and Martha. Um, by the way they reacted to his death, by the way that they uh, really in some ways were upset with Jesus because he wasn't there sooner, there's some sense there that he died too soon, that he may have been a young man. The way the mourners uh, showed up at that event, by their grieving, there's some sense that he died too soon. John 11 is the account of Lazarus' death and um, it's a wonderful account, too, of a visit from Christ that literally meant new life in Christ. I mean, not even figuratively, but literally meant new life in Christ. It's such a great story. Um, mourners who were hired in those days, if somebody died, they would actually hire mourners. So these mourners who were likely hired to show up for this event show up as mourners and leave as worshipers. I mean, that's just really cool to think about. They show up ready to cry on cue, and they leave as worshipers. The passage in um, John chapter 11 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So there was more than just Lazarus that found new life that day. But a bunch of mourners turned to worshipers. Such a great story. The chapter ends, though, with the details of a plot. Okay, get this. To murder... Christ. If, if you really just read the story like it's really a story and really connect to it, you've got to be amazed by things like that. Jesus called this man from death to life, three days dead and decaying, 
calls him forth to life from this dark tomb. And the result there is that people want to actually kill him. People want to murder Jesus. It's really crazy if you think about it. But then there's Lazarus. You know, just imagining what life was like for him after his new life in Christ. Um, Have you ever been really sick for a few days? Like with a really bad fever or like this sniper vomit bug where you just like hugging the porcelain god for seems like days Ugh. you know how you feel afterwards man i don't know if you're like me but after i've been sick i'm the worst patient poor christy when i'm, when I'm sick it doesn't happen often but when it does happen i'm a terrible patient but in the days after man the grass is greener and the sky is bluer I don't know if it's the contrast between feeling so bad and feeling better, but health just really feels good after a few days of being sick. So I'm imagining what life must have felt like for Lazarus having been dead three days. Dead and decaying. Uh, I grew up listening to Willie Nelson. We had records back in the day. We only had a few records. We had a Willie Nelson record and... um, it was some old classics from Willie Nelson. And one of the songs that Willie sang on that, on that album um, was uh, The Sunny Side of the Street. Grab your coat and get your hat. You ever heard this? Leave your worries on the doorstep. Life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street. I'm just imagining Lazarus skipping around Bethany singing The Sunny Side of the Street. I just love it, man. It's just a great image. I bet he skipped around whistling even. I bet he whistled. You know, you can't be sad and whistle. Such a great story. What's really crazy, though, in the very next chapter, the story begins with a beautiful act of worship. Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with the nard, likely a year's wage of nard. It's expensive perfume. Beautiful act of worship. But meanwhile, here's what's going on outside the house. There in Bethany. Listen, we're coming to Ephesians chapter 6 in a moment. But this is just bringing us there. Here's what's going on outside while Mary is anointing the feet of Jesus. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, in case we forgot from the previous chapter. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. All right. It's just crazy. If you just think about this for a minute, it's unbelievable, first of all, that they wanted to kill Jesus for calling a man from death to life. But what really, to me, is even more unbelievable is they actually want to kill the guy who was called from death to life. They want to kill Jesus, and they want to kill Lazarus. He's just walking around Bethany singing the sunny side of the street. Whistling, enjoying this new life in Christ. Man, he's no threat to anybody, right? He's just happy. Grass is greener and the sky is bluer, man. It is crazy to think about that there are forces that sinister and that evil that would actually want to kill Jesus, first of all, and then kill Lazarus, this guy who'd already died once. We're going to kill him again. Forces that sinister and that evil. So here's my question for you this morning. 
Did anyone warn you about these forces? Whenever you found new life in Christ, did anyone give you a heads up that life for you likely would be harder following Christ than it was when you weren't? Did anybody prepare you for that? Did anyone mention that once you follow Christ, there are forces at work that want to actively foil, I mean, that are working offensively to foil your new, happy, sunny side of the street life. Man, and these forces, by the way, outnumber you. These forces are ancient, so they got lots of experience and lots of practice. They don't sleep. They don't need sleep. And as if that weren't enough, they're also invisible. (laughs) Goodness gracious. Man, I wonder if Jesus... When he was at dinner with Lazarus, where Mary is anointing the feet of, of Jesus, I wonder if Jesus turned to Lazarus and said, Hey, uh, Laz, you know life is going to be harder now, right? You know you're going to have a bullseye on you now, right? Because I called you to new life. I'm thinking that every discipler should include this in his or her plan with that disciple to equip new disciples with what goes with words that Jesus used, like plow, like yoke, like cost, to add the words that we found last week in Ephesians chapter 6. Words like armor, words like schemes, words like devil, words like wrestling, words like rulers, authorities, and cosmic potentates. Part of that discipling should include Some tutoring on words like this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil. Every disciple should learn as part of foundational teaching these terrible realities. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This isn't just an ancient Christian notion. Those spiritual forces, those authority, those cosmic potentates are still alive and well. And they will continually still work to foil our efforts to walk in love, to walk in unity, to walk in holiness, and to walk in wisdom. They don't tire. They outnumber us. They've got lots of experience. If you have new life in Christ, you have a laser on you. I've had a lot of fun with this laser that Jeff... Jeff Willingham gave me. I use it a lot. On, or I use it frequently on sermons. Um, the ladies' retreat, we had a staff meeting on Tuesday, and we were talking ladies' retreat, and I'm about to tell something on Tiffany. Is she even in here? Yeah, she is. She's about to 
Yep, that's right. In staff meeting on Tuesdays, just staff meetings are funny. I mean, we really have a good time in staff meetings. Our staff really enjoys each other. And uh, Tiffany asked me if she could borrow the, borrow the laser for some teaching that was going to go on this weekend. And I said, sure you can. So, I, in fact, so I wouldn't forget, I got up in the staff meeting and I walked next door to my office and I grabbed the laser and I brought it back to her. And um, at about that point in the staff meeting, Aaron Adele is talking. We kind of go around the circle there and it's Aaron Adele's turn and she's talking. And I look over at Aaron Adele and she's got a dot right on her forehead. I got to be careful. She's got a dot. Can, you, can y'all see this? I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to aim it in my eyeball. But Tiffany is, is aiming the dot on Aaron's forehead. Like, I couldn't believe it. I've never done that. Like, I, I mean, I'm always like, I'm going to aim it at the floor of the ceiling. And Tiffany had it squarely right there on Aaron's. And Aaron didn't even know it. It was just a funny image. But, man, it's one that's true. <laughs> Lindsay. Leave the Lindsay Sutton. Man, it's true. Just You've... You've seen those action flicks where the guy, they finally catch the bad guy and there's like 800 lasers pointed at him and all these guys that have their guns. Well, just imagine a little different image. Instead of 800 lasers on one guy, imagine a laser on 800 of us. Every single one of us. When you follow Christ, man, I'm telling you, you have a bullseye on you. Following Christ means life will probably be harder for you than it was before Christ. Did anyone prepare you for those rigors? (laughs) But here's the cool thing. Here's the difference is the life that you've been called to comes with equipment to help you see it through. And that equipment is fine. That equipment is ample. And that equipment is available. We're spending this week and next week considering that equipment. Three pieces of armor this week and three pieces of armor next week. We're going to spend the next few minutes in verses 13, 14, and 15. If you want kind of a map and plan for the morning, I'm going to break these, this, this passage, verses 13 through 15, down into two sections. And we're just going to unpack it. And we're going to end the morning with just an application, something that we can walk in, I think, that makes sense for us, something that we can apply as a result of this passage. So first of all, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In the beginning of verse 14, stand firm. Therefore, okay, let's just unpack this. First of all, therefore, uh, Scott mentions it often. I mention it often. When you see the word therefore, you really need to ask the question, why is that word there? It's pointing back to something. And in this case, it's pointing back to the verses that are in front of it. Therefore, is basically saying, because of Satan's schemes and his active ancient army working tirelessly to foil our efforts to walk in unity, to walk in holiness, to walk in love, and to walk in wisdom, Paul gives two imperatives. And the first imperative there is to take up. And the second imperative is to stand firm. First of all, take up. Take up the whole armor, not part of it, but all of it, so that in the evil day you will be able to withstand. Now, the evil day. There's language in our Bibles that uses this evil day kind of language in a singular sense. The apocalyptic literature that points toward the end of the age or the time before Christ comes back where things will get especially evil and especially dark. That is some sense of what's being applied here, but there's some sense that he's talking about evil day in terms of a regular occurrence. Just the chapter before, in chapter 5, verse 16, he speaks of making the most of the time because the days are evil. 
There's some sense here that Paul, he might be implying the evil day in a singular sense, this end of the age day, but there's some sense that he's also speaking of the dailiness of evil things, the day of evil. Here are just a few ideas for you in case somebody can identify with some of these things. The day of evil for us might be the day you lose your job. The day that you've applied maybe decades of good service and then all of a sudden, out of left field, you lose your job. The day of evil might be the day where your spouse comes home, or maybe not even comes home, and says, I'm done with you, and I'm done with this. This is over. The day of evil might be a day that the closest of friends betrays you, and you have no place to put it, and you can't make sense of it. The day of evil may be the day that you get news from the doctor that leaves you fearful and heartbroken. The day of evil is the day that you have an argument with your spouse and you begin to believe it's truly hopeless. Has anybody ever felt that way? Anybody else ever felt that evil? That darkness. That sadness. That hopelessness. Here's one that I've struggled with my whole life. The day of evil may be the day that you realize you're losing in the kitchen. That's not a small thing. And church folk ought to be honest and talk about that. Man, I've struggled my whole life with my weight. Man, I'm a glutton in disguise right now. I'm telling you, looking right, right at you right now. And I struggle with this even still. And that's an evil for me that I have struggled with my whole life since being an overweight little boy. There's a sadness that goes with that. That evil day that you realize, man, I'm losing and the scale is winning and my clothes are losing. Anybody else need some idea of some way to withstand in that evil day? To stand faithful and to stand true? Man, I need some equipment for that. The day of evil may be the day that you're sad and depressed and hopeless and you don't really know why. Anybody else ever felt that way? We have every reason in the world to be thankful. You, you make a list of all the things that you're thankful for. In fact, you might even do that to try and pull yourself out of it, but it doesn't help. Anybody else know that evil day? Where you just want to sleep? Or maybe worse, you want to die? Anybody, ever else, anybody else ever felt that evil day? Anybody else need some armor? To help you withstand in that evil day? Man, the evil day is the day that you say the words, what have I done and how did I get here? How did I find this place, wretched man that I am, and who will deliver me from this body of death? That's an evil day when you have to reckon with what you have done. The day of evil can be the day that a tragedy takes someone you love or someone you love takes their own life even. It's the day of evil. Or someone you love dies after losing a battle with addiction. That's a sad, dark day. The day of evil comes when we have to deal with news you just can't process. News that's just too hard to even deal with, to even make sense of. The day of evil comes when you come to grips with spending more than you make. Anybody else ever done that? Man, that's a dark day. The day of evil comes when you don't expect it. The day of evil points to a future day, yes, in the story of redemption, but 
Between now and then, there are thousands of micro days, moments when we feel the sad realities of a fallen creation. The sad and realities of sin, of death, of loss, and a world that hasn't yet seen Christ's return. Lots of little micro evil days. The evil day is the day that we join Job in his sufferings. And here's my promise to you. If you haven't experienced the evil day, you will. The way it's communicated here, it's not if it happens, but when it happens. When that day comes, there's something for you that will help you withstand that evil day. I love this. This is so encouraging to me. I need to see this. I need to put my hands around this. Not if, but when that day comes, God has given you the goods to withstand and to stand firm in that evil day. That's good medicine. Verse 14 begins with the words, stand therefore. That is the second imperative of the passage. The first was to take up, and the second one is to stand therefore. With the previous words so far given in this passage to withstand and that you may be able to stand and now with this imperative to stand, there's the sense you can do this, verse 13, and now verse 14. So do it. You can do this. You have the goods for this. So here, do it. You can withstand this invisible ancient army. So do it. That's the command there at the beginning of verse 14. It's the stance of the soldier in combat. And I like the imagery of the combat and soldier ready to do business. Ready, standing in harm's way. Standing firm, grounded, resisting the enemy and prevailing. This is not an isolated reference in our New Testaments either. Paul apparently really liked this imagery. Here's a few samples. Romans chapter 5 verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans eleven twelve. they were broken off, speaking of the Jews, because of their unbelief, unbelieving Jews. But you stand fast through faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. I can't sit and speak about standing. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What great imagery, like a soldier ready to do battle. 2 Corinthians 1, 24, we work for you, for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. I'm trying to figure out if there's a book that, a letter that Paul wrote that he didn't use this image. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Philippians 4.1, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Colossians 4.12, it's even embedded in a, just a, a simple greeting. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand Mature and fully assured in all the will of God. It is a consistent message 
to occupy the position given them by God, won by Christ. It is a consistent message to God's people to hold the line. It is a consistent message to God's people to hold that hill that was won for you. It's a martial call. You're able to do it, so do it. There's three pieces of art, three articles of clothing that we're going to consider in these next few minutes. This is the second part of the sermon. Verse 14 continues, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, that's the first, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that's the second, and as shoes for your feet, here's the third, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and gospel shod feet. Paul was likely in prison when he wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus. Likely in prison in Rome. And being in prison in Rome, we would expect that he probably had a daily view of a Roman soldier wearing the armor ready for battle. We'll consider each of these three pieces of soldier's armor. First, considering the garment as it was used by the soldier. And then the metaphor. Trying to make sense of the metaphor so then we can figure out how we can then apply it to being soldiers of Christ in 2018. So the first article of clothing... The belt of truth. Stand firm, having fastened on the belt of truth. A soldier's belt was also called a girdle. I don't like the thought of that as a soldier wearing a girdle. So we're going to stick with belt, but it sort of gives the sense of what's going on there. It served the purpose of gathering up excess clothing so that one could fight unencumbered. I don't know about this for sure, but I'm just going to bet that an army of guys wearing dresses is probably going to lose. But an army of guys that have girded up those excess materials so that they can shoot, move, and communicate, so they can slip and slide, so they can zig and zag, is probably going to get it done. And they're probably going to do it in a way that's not going to avoid or that's going to avoid getting tripped up. The image of girding the loins was an ancient image, uh, even at the time of the writing of this, this letter. The Passover family was pictured. Back in the book of Exodus, eating herb-roasted lamb with their loins girded so that they could move out expeditiously when the Lord called them out of Egypt that very night. Christ, too, used this imagery. In Luke chapter 12, he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. In the original language, here's exactly what it says. Let your loins stay girded. And keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. The sense there is of readiness. Able to move unencumbered. Peter, too, used this image in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. That literally, in the original language, is therefore, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This sense here is of being ready to move. But what is the metaphor? We have an awareness of the... The garment, what it does for you, it sort of moves excess garments out of the way. But what's the metaphor? If we're talking about a battle with unseen forces, we can trust that we're not talking about a literal belt or a girdle, thankfully, but an article of armor that will enable the soldier of Christ to stand 
in the day of evil. I mentioned last week that these images came from the book of Isaiah. This particular image, this, or this first metaphor of the belt of truth, comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. You're welcome to turn there. It's just a brief reading, but you can turn there if you'd like. Isaiah chapter 11. This is the passage that begins. If you remember last week, it begins with the words, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We know that this passage is speaking about, prophetically, about Christ that would be born 700 years later. A, a, a shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse. Later in the passage, it goes into his armor and his articles of clothing. In verse 5, it says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness... The belt of his loins. That word in the original uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same word that's used over there by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. It's translated here faithfulness because it's being translated from Hebrew. But if you're looking at the original Greek word, which they would have studied, which Paul would have studied, it points to the same word that Paul used. It's where Paul got his reference, where, got, where, where he got his images. Now, here's why that's important. We can use this word faithfulness, and we can add to it the word, the notion of truthfulness as an attribute of the warrior. That Christ, as his attribute, had around his waist truthfulness and faithfulness. The cosmic warrior was girded with truthfulness and faithfulness as an attribute. Now, what does that have to do with us? First of all, let me say what this isn't speaking about in terms of the, the belt of truth that we wear around, around our waist. We're not speaking about the truth of the gospel. Okay, when Paul's talking about the truth of the gospel or the truths of the gospel, he is very specific and surgical about how he uses that language. Contextually, he explains it, or in many cases, he uses what's called the definite article. Let me show you in Ephesians chapter 1, verse... 13. This is very important. Now, I told Chris yesterday, we're going to have to do some work today. This is not a long sermon. Okay, I want to prepare you. It's not a long sermon, but you're going to have to work to make sense of these, these three articles of clothing. But if you do the work, you're going to be well equipped. You're going to, you're going to have some good gear on. Okay, so here's the first article of clothing. We're talking about the belt of truth. We're trying to figure out what it is in terms of metaphor. We understand the garment. We understand what the soldier did with it. But we're trying to make sense of the metaphor. We realize the, the passage reference comes from Isaiah chapter 11. Paul is grabbing that and pulling that over into, into Ephesians chapter 6. But what is he speaking about? Is we just talking about some ethereal idea that we put around our waist? Okay. And here's what it's not speaking about. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the, definite article, word of, what you can't see here in this passage is another definite article, truth. I'm going to read it the way it reads in the original language. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, here's, I'm doing some work here because it's important. What you're putting around your waist is not the truth of the gospel. I love the thought of that. There are plenty of other places where that can be developed. But that's not what Paul is saying over here in Ephesians chapter 6. 
Remember, the first three chapters of Ephesians is where Paul is saying, these are the indicatives about what God has done for us in Christ. It's the second three chapters where he's saying, okay, here's what you do. Now, here's where I'm going with that. It has to do with faithfulness and truthfulness as an attribute of the soldier of Christ. So here's where I'm going. As you, as a soldier, it is an element of character and activity to be demonstrated by followers of Christ. What you're putting around your waist is not the gospel, not the truth, God, truth of the gospel. What you're putting around your waist to protect you from the wiles and schemes of Satan is your truthfulness and your faithfulness as an attribute of the soldier that's wearing the garment. Man, this is huge. I, I really want you to get this. This attribute is something that belongs to the soldier of Christ. And it's an element of character and activity to be demonstrated by followers of Christ. This piece of armor is our truthfulness and our faithfulness. Soldiers of Christ are girded with truthfulness as we hold on to and consider and enjoy and understand and meditate on the definite article, truth that's in Christ which then compels us then to walk in truthfulness and faithfulness. Oh, law. Help me, help me get this across to this people. What you're putting around your waist is not an idea. An idea is fueling you to put something around your waist. A reality of what God has done for us in Christ is fueling you to pick up a piece of armor and put it around your waist. And that piece of armor is your truthfulness and your faithfulness. That's huge. I want to show you what it looks like. It's right here in Ephesians. Okay, I'm just give you a visual because this is going to take a little work, but this is a nice visual of it, what it looks like. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. You got to put your, your thinking cap on, really work at this. We're kind of uh, uh, parachuting into the middle of a conversation, but I don't think we have to work hard to make sense of what he's talking about. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Okay, envisioning, envision learning Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. See, definite article, the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now look at the next verse. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. All right. Here's where I'm going. It's the truth that is in Christ that fuels and compels us to speak the truth with our neighbor. You see the different use of truth there. It's learning Christ and the truths that are in Christ that then compel you to be true with one another. Two different uses of that word. It's the second one, the sense that you're putting around your waist. Your truthfulness and your faithfulness is what you put around your waist. Moving in truth, moving in faithfulness, even when, listen, when it's humiliating, even when it's difficult, even when it's embarrassing, and even when it's shameful, 
That's what a soldier of Christ does. See, some of you, some of you are living with a darkness right now and living in a, a place of darkness and a, play, a place of hiding certain areas of your lives. And a soldier of Christ says, I'm coming clean. And I'm going to drag that into the light as a soldier of Christ. I'm going to move in truthfulness and faithfulness. And guess what happens when you do that? The schemes and the ploys of Satan are pushed aside. And Satan is defeated in that. Will it mean your shame? Maybe. If you have a darkness that you're hiding, you might be really embarrassed calling another friend or a brother or a family member saying, man, I'm struggling with this and I need your help. There's this dark place, this dark hidden area of my life. And Satan's winning over there. Girding yourself up with the belt of truthfulness and faithfulness says, I'm going to drag that into the light and I'm going to move truthfully in that, whatever it costs me. And Satan's lost his weapons then. Satan can't win then. Man, I love how this is applied. I love how it connects. Moving in truth, even when it's humiliating, difficult, embarrassing, and shameful. And here's this. Moving in faithfulness, even when it's expensive. See, God, over the course of time, as you're sitting under the taught and priest's word, I trust, I believe, that he shows you areas of your lives that say, this is what faithfulness means. This is what faithfulness looks like in your life. And it's going to cost you, though. It might cost you money. It might cost you thousands and thousands of dollars in, in taxes or in wages to come clean, to be true and to be faithful. But you do it because you're a soldier of Christ. And, what, and Satan, Satan has no weapons in that. You've rendered him ineffective because whatever's been hidden in darkness, whatever has been lied about, whatever's been hidden, has been dragged into the light, and he is rendered ineffective. We combat Satan in the evil day with our truthfulness and faithfulness. Our truthfulness and faithfulness. The Marines adopted the motto, Semper Fidelis, in 1883. It means always faithful. I, I like that motto. It means a lot to me. But that motto doesn't belong to the Marines. It belongs to the soldiers of Christ. Long before 1883. Faithful and soldier are synonymous. Truthful, soldier are synonymous. That's the belt that we wear, girded with the belt of truthfulness and faithfulness, whatever it costs me. Satan's got no, no weapons against that. Second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. We're standing firm, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the garment. The breastplate of the Roman soldier was made of leather, like really thick leather, leather had kind of been hardened, or bronze, or iron. And as you'd expect, they served to cover and protect the vital organs. That's their purpose. You see, you see exactly where it is, protecting the heart and the lungs and all that. The image comes from Isaiah chapter 59, and I'll just share the passage with you. Like the other Isaiah passage, you're welcome to turn there, or you can just listen to this passage in Isaiah chapter 59. This is describing how God moves as a warrior. 
Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, warrior Lord. The Lord as warrior saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on, a, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. That's the imagery that Paul is drawing on here in Ephesians chapter 6. This breastplate of righteousness. And it's referring to God's righteousness as an attribute of the warrior. This appears to be the righteousness and justice of God displayed for us as believers like it's an attribute. Like the truthfulness and faithfulness that belongs to the warrior. Here the righteousness that belongs to the warrior. The righteousness and justice that belongs to the warrior as a product of being his. As an attribute belonging to to the warrior. This is not speaking of the righteousness that's imputed to us by faith in Christ. I love that righteousness. It's dear to me. It should be dear to every single one of us. It's the righteousness that won us. It's the righteousness that he imputed to us. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 wonderfully develops that concept of imputed righteousness. That's not what we're speaking about right here. We're speaking about the righteousness and justice that's the attribute of the warrior. It is an ethical quality. The Christian soldier's breastplate of righteousness is his or her acts of righteousness and justice. Man, I can already anticipate the emails I'm going to be getting from some folks today. Wait a minute. Let me, let me clarify something for you. Let me clarify something. This is important. Folks are scared to death to talk about righteous works. And here's why. You should be. Because it's so easy for folks to get them out of order. It's so so easy for folks to get confused, to start thinking about it. Are you talking about righteous works that are somehow going to get us saved? No. Not by a mile. Because you can't do enough righteous works to get you saved. I'm talking about righteous works that are in response to you being saved. I'm talking about fitting response to what he's imputed to us, that we then move with a breastplate covering our vital organs righteously, that we move in justice, in response, and that is a protection for us from Satan. Let me show you how it goes down. Ephesians chapter 2. I told you we're going to do a little work. You make sense of these things. They're important. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, maybe my most favorite, favoritest uh, passage in the Bible. I think it's it's the first half of the gospel. And I'm going to explain why in a moment, why it's the first half of the gospel. But it's so dear. It's so dear. Listen to it. Listen to where it lands, too. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You had no defense against the prince of the power of the air. You were one of his, by the way. You were on his team. The spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, his body, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We, before Christ, were due the wrath of God. Let that hit you. 
We were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, and we were by nature children of wrath. But the sweetest two words in our Bible, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Those are his verbs. By grace you've been saved. Here's another verb that he did. He raised us up with him. And he, here's a third verb. He seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, riches of his grace and kindness toward us, the likes of us, in Christ Jesus. And in case you get it confused and you think that work somehow contributed to this, boy, he rounds it out for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You don't have enough righteous works. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now listen to verse 10. Here's where the righteous works fits in. For we are his workmanship, now, now one, now finding new life in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for Good works. Breastplate. Your righteous works right here, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Man, folks are scared to death to talk about righteous works for fear of confusing folks. We are not talking saving righteous works. They know that thing. We're talking about responding, righteous works, the ones that you were won for. The one that you were recreated for. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse verse 10. Romans chapter 6, verse 13 puts it nicely. Ironically, in the same book where he does go into great detail talking about imputed righteousness in chapter 3. In Romans chapter 6, he says this. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And as your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's Paul's way of saying, because he's imputed righteousness to you, you live a worthy, righteous life. (laughs) And here's the wonderful message of this metaphor. (laughs) Righteous living serves as a protection against the schemes of the devil. You want to live a worldly life and then you're surprised that you get waylaid by the devil? I'm like, duh, duh. You want to live a worldly life, neck deep in the world and all that it has to offer, and you're surprised when he waylays you? Man, your protection comes from walking in righteousness. Like we move truthfully, unencumbered, girded with the belt of truth, God's righteousness means we move righteously with our vitals protected. Righteous living protects you from the schemes of Satan. Righteous living protects you from the schemes of Satan. Now the third article of clothing. Stand firm having put on the readiness given by the gospel. Footwear was a very important piece of gear for a soldier. It still is. Uh, A soldier or a marine that doesn't take care of his feet is going to be rendered ineffective. They teach you to change your socks. They teach you to keep your feet dry. They teach you baby powder. 
You don't take care of your feet, you're done. So footwear is very important for the soldier. Ancient soldiers wore sandals that had straps that came up the calf. And the sole was made of layers of leather stacked to about three quarters of an inch or so with spikes embedded. Sort of like ancient cleats. I, I, I thought, anybody ever wear Doc Martens? Those ugly sandals, Doc Martens? That's, that's exactly like what we're talking about, but different. Those are exactly the same, but different. These ridiculous looking sandals but now with spikes. The metaphor comes from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What an awesome, awesome passage. The beautiful feet of one who carries good news. Here, though, Paul is not using that metaphor exactly the same. He's tweaking it. And this is important. He's tweaking that metaphor a little bit. Look at the way he words it. The readiness given by the gospel of peace. He's not speaking of readiness to share the gospel. This is important. Is that important? Absolutely. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about a readiness to share the gospel, but rather appropriation of the gospel of peace that makes you ready for war. It's different. It's an appropriation of the gospel that makes you ready for war with Satan and his minions. Let me show you how it works. I just read my favorite passage to you, the first half of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Look back at the, the verses right after that. For me, it's just a treat reading these verses. This is the second half to the of the gospel, right here. The first half I just read. Here's the second half. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the, by the, the flesh with hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But then my second two favorite words in the Bible, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That's the second part of the gospel. Man, the first part of the gospel is wonderful. That we have been reconciled vertically with our creator. Man, I love that. I hope that's dear to you. But this is equally important and equally dear. Because of this vertical reconciliation, verses 1 through 10. Because what he won for us through the cross... He has also won a horizontal peace between Jew and Gentile, between Hatfield and McCoy, between blacks and whites, between anybody married to a woman, between a man and a woman. I need to know that. I need to know that the person that thinks about life, the complete opposite that I think about, that God through the cross, through, that Christ through the cross has won a union there for me. So that the two are made one. Man, that's the rest of the gospel. 
And here's what's awesome about that. When you are wearing gospel-shod feet, when your feet are wearing vertical reconciliation with Christ, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, and wearing horizontal peace between Jew and Gentile, the most unlikely of bedfellows and friends, are made into one, when you're wearing those things on your feet, man, then you are ready to do business with Satan. We're ready not just to share the gospel, but to serve as needed because of the gospel. We have this awareness and this realization, this horizontal and vertical peace that readies us to do combat with Satan, the peace hater. Knowing what was hard won for us, this vertical and horizontal peace, it leaves us ready not just to share the gospel, but to serve as needed because of the gospel. It has so transformed our view on every situation, both the vertical and the horizontal piece, that we're ready to work. We're ready to serve. It's a disposition that makes folks quick to see their duty and poised to fight the good fight. It's a readiness that's produced by the gospel of peace. Gospel-shod feet say, I'm in. You need a teacher for third graders? Elisha Hollis? Yes, we do. I'm in. I've got the gospel on my feet. I'm wearing it. I'm ready. I'm ready to do kingdom work. You ready to go to two services and we need all kind of people? I got the gospel on my feet. I'm ready. I'm ready to serve. How could I not serve wearing the gospel that I stand in? It's that good, vertical peace and horizontal peace. How could I not serve? The soldier of Christ is charged with being ready for action because he or she is conditioned by the gospel and poised for service. The belt of truth is your truthfulness and faithfulness. The breastplate of righteousness, your righteousness and just works that you walk in that were prepared in advance for you. And gospel-shod feet, making you ready to serve. These are the first three pieces of armor that enable you to stand in that evil day. So here's the application. The best defense is a good offense. My vast sports experience and love, love me some sports. I learned long ago with all my sports interest. Actually, I learned in some Marine Corps. The best defense is a good offense. And every, every, all three of these things are offensive the way they play out. All three of them, the way they play out, they're offensive. The belt of truth involves living a life that's true. Moving in sincerity and truth, reflecting a life that's true because of a Savior that's true, doing true things, moving in a way that involves dragging things into the light, walking in the light, even if it's expensive, even if it's hard, even if it's shameful. The breastplate of righteousness involves right living and personal righteousness that's responding to God's righteousness. And that 
serves to protect us from Satan. And gospel-shod feet that leave you ready to serve, ready to step where needed, ready to do battle as you're grounded in the peace of the gospel, this too serves to protect you from the wiles of Satan. Let me just promise you this. It's sad to see it, but I've seen it so many times. Kingdom idleness is the best way to be manhandled by Satan. Kingdom idleness is the best way to be manhandled by Satan. May I make you that promise? It's true that the devil finds work for idle hands. The devil finds work for idle hands. But the cool thing is, he doesn't have much of a chance to fool you if you're busy about kingdom, faith-fueled work. (laughs) You're wearing some good armor. You're an armor-wearing people that will be true even if it costs you. Satan loses. Your people working at good works because you've been saved. Satan loses. And your people poised and ready to serve because the gospel made them so. Satan loses. Kingdom advances. Staff and leadership of Cross Point have been talking a lot about what's in the next chapter of Cross Point Fellowship. God has been really good to us in this last year, in this last 15. But in these last year or so, he's brought new families. There's new faces all around the room. There's folks that you can think of like, man, Lord just brought them in this last season. And as a staff and as leadership, we're sitting around talking about what next? What next? You know, we're going to buy some property. We're going to put in a parking lot. We're going to go to two services. We're going to sell this property. We're going to buy property somewhere. All kind of questions and all kind of things are, are discussed and, and considered. And part of that conversation is, is, is also, can our people handle this? Can our people handle a season where they're going to be stretched and challenged, maybe beyond they, beyond they've, more than they ever have in the past? Beyond what they're accustomed to? My thought is, man, this is our church. Our church. Like ours. Ours. Of course they will. Of course they will. And we're not going to sit and soak in this gospel week after week and not move in it. Man, we want to be wise and discerning and we want to hear and we want to talk together and we want to consider what all of our people are thinking as we move forward. But let me tell you something. When this plan is executed, it's going to be violently executed. Is it going to be the perfect plan? I don't know. But we're going to treat it like it is and we're going to trust God in every step of it. If you wait for the perfect plan to materialize, you'll never step forward. If you do the best you can to make sense of what God's plan is for you, and then you violently executed it, trusting him all the while, man, it's going to be awesome. But it's going to stretch every one of us. You're going to need his armor. You're going to have to have gospel-shod feet. Ready to step out and do some battle. You're going to have to wear that breastplate of righteousness, ready to do some righteous and great works. You're going to have to wear that belt of truth, moving in truthfulness and faithfulness. 
It's a serious season of kingdom work in store for Crosspoint Fellowship. It's thankfully our church and it's our work. Following Christ is hard, folks. It's a whole lot easier. Sin is pretty easy. Anybody else can agree? Sin's easy. Walking with Christ, walking in truthfulness, walking in faithfulness, walking in righteousness, walking with gospel-shod feet. Man, Satan wants to have you for breakfast. But you'll find wonderful protection in actively serving the Lord in kingdom work. You can do this, Crosspoint Fellowship. So do it. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for this time together. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for these images, these visuals that take us to um, our verbs. Lord, we're thankful that those verbs, ultimately, you work in and through us also. Not only did you work the gospel for us and made us alive and raised us and seated us, but even the verbs that we may be able to walk in, whatever truthfulness and faithfulness, whatever righteous works we may accomplish, whatever uh, readiness we may demonstrate, that even that is something you do in us and through us, Lord. We are thankful. We ask you for more of the same. Lord, I pray for those folks in our, in our room or in this room right now that are struggling with being, being waylaid by Satan. The hard and difficult things that folks are struggling with because they've lived unrighteous, they lived in the dark, they lived faithlessly. Lord, I pray that you'll use this message to galvanize them to put on the full armor. We love you, Lord, and trust you. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to distribute our elements here in a moment, but I just want to share a thought with you before we do. I want to share a passage. It's a passage that I held out on you. I told you, I don't know if there's a book that, or a letter that Paul wrote that he didn't use the image of standing, sort of this warrior standing. But I want you to consider this passage in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want you to notice what elements are here. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Man, I love the images. I love the details that are in here. First, we've got the elements of the gospel. The gospel of Christ, and then a life that is lived in a manner that's worthy in response to the gospel of Christ. And the result is standing firm in one spirit. There's that imagery. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Man, here's what I want you to get. If wisdom were a degree you could get in school, this is something our youth have been enjoying on Wednesday nights. If wisdom were a degree you could get in school, you wouldn't learn it at university. It wouldn't be a degree you could get at university. If wisdom were a, a degree you could get in school, you would learn it at the local Votech school. Because it's hands-on. 
It's hands-on, people. Wisdom says the second three chapters of Ephesians are a fitting response to the first three. Wisdom says, man, I've got some verbs to walk in. Man, I want to work, walk in them faithfully. That's applying it. We've got our welder's hat on. We're not talking about ideas. You don't live in ideas. We're talking about real stuff, real things that connect to real life. That's what we're about to do with this Lord's Supper. If we just lived in the first three chapters of Ephesians, I would just talk about the Lord's Supper, and then we would sing a song, and we'd leave. And it would still sit over there on that table, and that would sit over there on that table. But guess what we're going to do with it here in a minute? We're going to pass it around. You're going to hold it in some flesh in those hands, and you're going to drink it and pour it into some flesh because flesh connects to these truths, or it's not wise. Wisdom says these things have to connect. So as we distribute these elements here in a moment, we are living in, we are enjoying a truth that has been accomplished through the cross. What Christ accomplished through the cross, his broken body and flesh and blood shed, man, that's an absolute truth. But it's connecting to real life as you're holding them with your real hands. Say, Lord, please connect the dots for me and show me where my life is disconnected from these truths. Show me how to move wisely with my welder's hat on, enjoying you in real life. Let's distribute the elements.